0: Welcome to Stanford Innovation Lab. I'm Tina Seelig, Professor of the Practice in the Department of Management Science and Engineering at Stanford University. This podcast is designed to give you a taste of the topics we explore in our classes on innovation and entrepreneurship. Today's guest is my wonderful colleague, Professor Bob Sutton, who's been studying organizations for many years. He's the co-director of the Designing Organizational Change Project, here at the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, and he's also the author of many books, including Scaling Up Excellence and The No-Asshole Rule. His newest book, The Asshole Survival Guide, is hitting bookshelves later this year. He's also launching a new eCorner podcast entitled The Friction Podcast, which is a deep dive into the way organizations deal with clashes of all types. In the first of the next two episodes, Bob and I talk about creative friction. Where can it be useful and where can it be harmful? We'll also discuss the differences between team dynamics in academics and in business settings. Plus, you'll hear the latest research about strategic temper tantrums. Bob, it's such a pleasure to have you here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
1: Me too. It's great to have an excuse just to sit down and talk with you.
0: You have been studying groups and organizations for as long as I've known you. I mean, I've been here for 18 years, and I've been fascinated by your dedication to this topic of really trying to understand how organizations work. What motivates you to tackle this topic?
1: Oh, gosh. Well, you know, there's an argument that I don't really know how to do anything else, but um, I, I... it's interesting if you go way back to why I got into um, – I was an undergraduate psychology major at Berkeley and to why I got into studying organizations. A lot of it was uh, because of uh, my father's business and how frustrated he always was. He was always railing against the government. It was always so difficult. And he had all these employee problems and – and uh and, and I so I had sort of two motivations. One was just, you know, I just how frustrating and difficult it was for him to be an entrepreneur. He was actually a moderately successful entrepreneur. And then the other part was to avoid going into the family business, I had to like find something else. So between those two things, uh the psychology of, of business and, and 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 if you know, I some people say that my work is dark, but I'm always looking for sort of like uh, problems and difficult things because i i don't there's not a lot of like real happiness and upbeat like the like psychology of happiness or things like that that 's nowhere in my work and then um, and then the, the this theme of uh looking for uh things that bother me or disturb me or upsetting around me I, I actually think that continues through everything I've ever done. So my dissertation, uh, was on organizational death in Michigan oh, and, really? and, organi- and then organizational death and decline. And, uh, and, uh, so I studied the, pro- not, not what causes organizational death or decline, but the the process by which you manage it, especially the human part of it. And in Michigan in the 1980 to 1983 or so, it was just one plant closing, um, after another. So, uh, Uh, I I could go through, I don't want to go through my whole resume or whatever, but uh, pretty much with rare exceptions, um, everything I've ever studied is because uh, of things that bother me and I try to understand them.
0: So interesting. Well, looking at uh, problems in organizations, that Uh sort of job security, right? I mean, people who work in organizations are usually frustrated about something. And in fact, I'm fascinated with your recent focus on friction in organizations. I love that. I think it's such a brilliant framing of what often happens in companies or or any Uh organization is that the tension is really some type of friction, right? I want to do something, you don't, or you want to do something and I don't, and how that friction affects uh, what ends up getting done? Can you talk a little bit about what yeah, yeah, you mean yeah. by friction? Yeah. yeah,
1: so so I guess that's a you know we, we we classic academics we have to define our terms eventually, but but the the kind of friction that at least got Huggy Rao and I interested in this is is I, for lack of a better term, I would say dysfunctional friction, and not so much conflict, but uh, th- the notion that um, things are more difficult. Um, to get done than they should be or impossible or um entail um a whole bunch more emotional energy, cognitive load, frustration. They wear people out. So um, although it is interesting because uh, we've started out um, talking about the negative aspects of friction and probably uh, dysfunctional friction, you just say that um, you're there. But uh, but we also are thinking about situations where friction is positive, and 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 so it is funny because we 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 we've had this discussion a little bit. But there's two kinds, uh, or there's a couple different kinds of definition. One is simply making some things harder to do is 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 a good thing actually and uh and then the other kind of friction, which is I think the kind you like to talk about and I like to talk about would be creative abrasion when when people are having conflict or argument and uh and so, although I've, in some of my other work, I've done that under other banners, such as constructive confrontation.
0: Let's talk about um, what w- situations where creative friction is good and when it's bad. So, t- just riff on that for a couple minutes, because I know you've thought about it a lot. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so to me, um, so I, I, I think of uh, it, it is interesting because uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Huggy Rao and I did an interview. Um, with Brad Bird, the, he's Academy Award-winning director of, uh, well, most famously, The Incredibles, the right Pixar. Uh, Pixar guy, uh, before that, The Iron Giant. And um, and his perspective of, of, of creating what you call creative abrasion or friction or sort of pushing things so that people are just really fighting over ideas and challenging the status quo for a creative organization like Pixar is very important. And, and, and to me, especially if you're mostly doing creative work, that's really important. And if you go back to Brad's history, he was brought in by Steve Jobs, uh, John Lasseter, and Ed Catmill, the people running uh, Pixar at the time. And uh, they were concerned because uh, they'd seen what happened to Disney Animation Studio and how it slid into mediocrity. And so they wanted to bring in somebody, and they'd only done two film, three films, uh, Toy Story 1, Toy Story 2, and A Bug's Life. This is early in their uh, history. They wanted to bring in somebody who would shake them up and challenge who they were. So they brought in Brad Bird. So Brad had been fired by Disney for being um, kind of, he couldn't stand the mediocrity and started going crazy. Um, I think he was fired um, by the Simpsons TV show for the same thing. Um, and so they brought him in and the, the quote from him is, uh, you know, I'd been fired before for being, uh, difficult and argumentative and I've never been hired for it before. So they brought him in and I mean, he did shake things up. And, uh, when we interviewed him, one of the things he said, the first thing he, w- when he wanted to staff the Incredibles was, uh, to HR, give me your black sheep. I want the people who think that, uh, what, what Pixar does isn't right, that it sucks. They're ready to quit. Those are the people he made the Incredibles with. Wow, and uh, and so he really did shake things up, and and there's even footage for your listeners that I, I still show this in class all the time. There's there's great footage. It's you know they they have sort of the the extra material when you the make outtakes, a film yeah. the outtakes for the Incredibles, and there's him and his uh, head of production John Walker, and they were just fighting all the time and and the first time I met John Walker he said so you should look at some of that extra material on the DVD because he said working with Brad Bird in that film was like being in love he's this loving conflict every day
0: so interesting one of the models I like to use in my mm. class and I wonder if you use it because it helps understand how this works mm. is De Bono's six hats is the idea no no
1: it's one of those things I always t- tell me more okay if so okay, could- I
0: find it really useful yeah. well, first of all most personality tests are like okay I am an ENTJ and you are a whatever your uh-huh. enneagram the six hats is interesting because of course you take off and on hats right a hat is right, not right, something right, you right. are a hat is something you wear and the idea is that the green hat is the creative hat. This is where you're generating ideas. The black hat is a devil's uh-huh. advocate. This is where you're questioning ideas. Uh-huh. And then there are four other hats. The uh, red hat, which is the person who leads with with uh-huh. intuition. The blue hat is the process hat. The white hat is the facts. Uh-huh. And the yellow hat is the person who just wants everyone to get along. Okay, sort of the positive hat. Uh-huh. And um, I love this because it allows you to say, okay, now's the time we need to put on the green hat where we're going to generate ideas and build on ideas and and look at all the possibilities. But there is a time when you put on the black hat where you can right. have conflict. Right. And the idea is that it's not that you want all of them at all at the same time. That's when you end up getting the kind of friction that might be problematic. But if you can essentially separate out the different processes. yeah. And
1: in that process, I mean, the, the general rule to the extent possible is to try to to separate uh, the the personality and and all the angst from the the actual evaluation of the problem or situation. And uh, that's a difficult thing to do. Some companies, uh, and, you know, where we've heard about this recently, um, uh, uh, at eBay, and this goes back to Disney, too, they would have a tradition that when they were going to make a major decision, they would uh, take two senior executives. One was assigned to argue pro, the other one, um, con, sort of like a moot court competition almost. And, uh, and I think that's a very constructive and very healthy thing.
0: So I want to dive into a, another interesting topic that I think about all the time, and I, I think you're going to have some wisdom on this. We teach classes on creative problem solving, on team dynamics, and we're in a classroom setting – The classroom setting is really different than a work setting. How do we prepare our students for that very different environment where there's a hierarchy, right? If I put students on a team of four or five in a class project, it's going to be that dynamic. It's going to be very different than when they go into a work environment where there's a boss, there are politics, that there's a history. How do you deal with that?
1: well you know i'm sure that we are preparing some of them um improperly i mean i think that uh, sometimes i wonder whether um you know and maybe this is, I, i'm i'm a less positive person than you are this is well established tina um uh sometimes i wonder um that that we're so nice and so supportive of them that that we don't Confront them with the reality of what happens to them when they get their jobs, and they come in, and they're, they're um, in the worst cases both self entitled and naive. And uh, so, I, so, some of the more interesting things that happen to me that have opened my eyes are: um, I'm a member of a teaching team where I would describe myself as more of a of a second or third wheel, but it's been amazing seven or eight years. Uh, with Perry Claibon, uh Jeremy Utley, and now Catherine Segovia, which is a class that we teach where we take pairs of students and put them into real companies. And uh, their job is to lead innovation, pro- um, innovation projects and to get the people. So we've done stuff at the SF Opera. We've done stuff at social service agencies. And in those situations, they end up in um, walking into rooms Where there's real authority structures.
0: Well, so, but that's an interesting situation, though, Bob, because what you're doing is you're taking the students and you're taking them out of the classroom. Right in that most students in their classes don't get that opportunity. They're working on a a homogeneous team of students and they're given a challenge. They have to come up with an idea. And the question is then who gets to make the decision, right? We've put them on these teams where they're all uh, of equal status.
1: Supposedly.
0: Supposedly. (laughs) supposedly,
1: I'm describing the, the one class I teach where that happens. Most of the other classes I teach there's complete lack of realism, honestly. Right. And uh, and, and from that perspective, um, and, and and the other way in which it's not realistic, and I always say this to them, is that uh, a long project would be seven or eight weeks. I say to them, when you look, no matter how bad it is, when you look back on this, not even two weeks after the term is over, you're going to say to yourself, "Why was I so upset?" And and I can say that to them because it's actually usually true. And then in the best cases, they go off and they start a company or something like we're Anka and Akshay starting uh, Pulse or something would be like the happy ending sort of story. But uh, the problem with organizational life, to your point, is if you said that to somebody, you might be lying a little bit.
0: When I watched the movie Whiplash, and I don't know if you've oh, seen yeah, it. Oh, yeah, I did see the movie Whiplash. Where you, know, you have this teacher who is essentially <sighs> – um, being so aggressive with this student and ends up ultimately squeezing out an incredible performance from this, from this kid. It's a drummer and I am the opposite, right? I am the nurturing mother, you know, who's always trying to encourage. And I always feel like that is going to get the best result. Am I deluding myself or like, what is your philosophy and how do we get the most um, creativity, productivity, out of our students is it it, is it it. individual student by individual student is it individual class Uh, Uh, how do you think about it
1: Well, I probably think about it more consistently. By the way, you get an incredible amount of work out of your students. You're really nice, but uh, there's a way in which you're tough that, that, that it takes them a few weeks to figure out, but they figure it out. So uh, so you're not – you're not you Well, know, enjoying- I basically
0: tell them, listen, um, I never miss an opportunity to be fabulous. I mean I basically say I don't care. I'm happy to give everybody an A in this class, but the bar is really high. You also and say I never
1: th- argue with me about a grade. I don't want I to talk too much. I say
0: never a- talk to you about a grade. Yeah. So
1: so there's, there's – uh, some iron fist under that velvet yeah. glove. Uh, so the the way I think about, it, and this is a general, more general leadership thing, and you kind of um, touched on it, but 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 to me, there's uh, it, and there's research on this, and the, this curvilinear notion of when you're when you're leading people. That on one hand, they're sort of hands off, warm, fuzzy, nice. On the other hand, there's really getting in their face, not necessarily yelling at them, but being aggressive, pushing, pu- not like whiplash, which was extreme, but pushing, pushing, criticizing, uh, expressing. Um, uh, uh, expressing disapproval, little flashes of anger. There's research about how powerful little flashes of anger are. I'll, I'll get to in a second. And, and to me, what the best leaders do is they're not one speed all the time. And there's evidence from Frank Flynn at Stanford Business School about um, assertiveness. And his argument is that the best bosses are perfectly okay. assertive. And, and, and the argument from this research is not that they're kind of medium all the time they know when to turn it off and they know when to turn it on. And some of that is personality based. And, you know, we, we all know this from having uh, multiple students and multiple people in our life. There's some people in our lives that, uh, that if you just give them a little bit of criticism, they kind of fall apart. You have to be really careful. And other people I'm thinking, of you know, one of my, uh, my now six uh, tenure doctoral students, Liz Gerber, Liz Gerber was always in my office saying, you're not being critical enough. This is all you got. I'd give her everything I had and be as, critical as possible you're being way too nice to me i want more (laughs) so 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 so, so there is there is that sort of curvilinear thing and then there's also times in the rhythm if you're leading a team when to push and when to back off and and so what i'm thinking of is there's a really interesting now i think he collected the data 15 years ago study done by uh, barry staw at the university of california at berkeley and and i think part of the genesis of this is probably 25 years ago we started having a conversation about when um, temper tantrums work and our strategic and are better at getting the best out of people. So Barry, I, I didn't, wasn't involved in the ultimate research. He, with a doctoral student and then somebody who visited us last year, Katie DeSellis, eventually got involved in the project. They did a study of a negative emotional outbursts, basically temper tantrums, by coaches at halftime in um, college basketball teams. It was college and high school basketball teams too, pretty big sample, and they go in there and code what the coach did. And essentially what they found was that uh, the coaches who just yelled all the time didn't work because this is the usual thing. But the coaches who were usually low-key, that that, uh, when they had a temper tantrum and yelled at them at halftime, it worked. That Because you can compare yeah, the right, halftime, right, right, yeah. the, the performance in the first half to the second half, right? Super
0: so. interesting because you would – one of the things I often think about is how consistent should one be as a leader, right? Is, and what you're basically saying is that you, actually the modulation is really much more important because then you don't um, diffuse your opportunity, right? If you're always um, very aggressive, you right. miss that opportunity. People start – they sort of discount it.
1: The coaches who lost their temper, um, and this is one of the interpretations in the paper, who lost their temper at halftime. So the, you think of the attribution. You walk in and it's the same coach, and he or she yells at you every time. It's like it's it's like you say, ah, just an asshole. They're yelling again. Okay, so you had like nine games in a row. The person's always nice and civilized. They start yelling at you, and you say. Oh, maybe it is us, so a lot of it has to do with 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 the attribution that you make um and 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 the accountability and responsibilities
0: and I think that. One of the things that's really an opportunity when you're a young person in a workforce, you get to see how those people who are in more junior positions are being treated. Because when you at some future time are in a a leadership position, and I was talking to a student actually just this morning who was telling me about how disappointed she is and how she's being treated in her job, and I said, pay attention to this. Because when you're in a position where you're running an organization, you should remember that this is something you didn't like.
1: Oh okay. So there's what's, what's his name? There's, there's a famous book called Up the Organization. I, I can't believe I can't remember the name. It was by, written by the CEO of a, of Avis, and he had worked um, earlier at American Express, and it, he has covered a line in the in in, in this book. Um, uh, Townsend, Robert Townsend, that's his name. He has this line in this book that uh, when when he was a leader and he would try to figure out what to do, he would just think about exactly what a boss he, would, he had at American Express would do and he'd do the exact opposite. He said was always the right
0: Yeah, thing. right, exactly. Like, so it's a great learning opportunity. <laughs> it's always a pleasure talking to Bob. Tune in next week for the second part of our discussion. And don't forget about our Innovation Challenge. For details, please go to the episode on April 19th and submissions are due this Friday, May 5th. The ones we received so far are absolutely fascinating and I can't wait to tell you all about them. This podcast is brought to you by Stanford eCorner and the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, the Entrepreneurship Center at Stanford School of Engineering. Stanford Innovation Lab is produced and edited by Eli Shell. Our digital solutions manager is Sarah Kahn, with software development by Davor Senkovich. Our designer is Daniel Stusi, and communications and marketing are led by Mike Pena and Monica Yort. You can find additional podcasts, videos, and articles at eCorner.stanford.edu. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on both this podcast and our ETL series. So please follow us on Twitter and eCorner. And if you're a fan of the series, please leave a review on iTunes. Finally, remember, entrepreneurs do much more than imaginable with much less than seems possible.